I thought in 2002, that band was just crushing, like Godzilla crushing Tokyo. It's really cool, but it was, a, it was a great era for Tab. There was a couple of particular shows that I remember that were like, just so heavy, stomping heavy. It got really, really intense. It's a cool era. I was deeply immersed in Tab. Welcome back to Alive Again. In this episode, you'll hear about the growth of the Trey Anastasio band in the early 2000s, the importance of the barn, the impact of Fish's hiatuses on Trey's bands, and some of the defining moments of this period. Thanks for tuning in. recorded Billy Breeze in the barn studio at Bearsville. And they had a side studio. They had Studio A, Studio B. Bearsville's an amazing studio. Great history. Lots of people have recorded there. I think R.E.M. did virtually all their albums there. The band, you know, uh, the Rolling Stones. So we did two records there. But yeah, we did Story of the Ghost and uh, uh, Billy Breeze. And Billy Breeze was in this converted barn that they turned into like Studio C. And I just thought it was cool. And so... Sometime around 95, this barn came up for sale in the valley right near my house. And I got sort of um, huck-finned by this really wise old farmer who gave me the sort of country dumb trick to the city boy out there. So he had me like come to his house and he's like, the guy had like three beautiful barns and full of these 200-year-old barn board like that would have sold for thousands of dollars in you know New York City where people wanted to put barn board in their house. But this was a work, it has a barn with cows in it. It was a huge barn. And he said, you know, I'm feeling nice today. And you look like a nice kid. I know you want my barn. He's like, I'll tell you what, I'll give it to you for a thousand bucks. The whole barn. And I was like, you gotta be, oh my God, you gotta be kidding. I mean, like the, the beams are worth <laughs> you know, like 15,000. And I said, okay, okay, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it a thousand bucks. He shook my hand. He said, okay, now when you take your barn, I want grass planted, and I want my field to look like there was never a barn there. And I paid him $1,000 for this barn. But there was like a lower level. It was like a basement in the barn. <laughs> and it had like, you know, 100 years of cow shit all packed out and all this stuff. I kid you not. And I'm standing there like, did I just get Huck Finn? You know, like, like you know, I know you want to whitewash this fence, but I'm not going to let you because it's so fun. <laughs> So finally, I paid him a thousand bucks, and then I had to take the barn down. It's called the Allen Irish Barn. You know, I, I want to go back and find him if he's still around. He's an older guy. So we moved it up, and then it took a really long time to set it back up. It was me and these two brothers who are good friends of mine, Mike and Matt Larson. They did it like on a flatbed with a pickup truck. They like took it down piece by piece by hand. It was unbelievable. Marked everything with chalk, moved it on a, with a pickup up the hill, put in the driveway where the barn is. And then it was like half constructed. 
My name is Bryce Goggin. I'm a record producer and a recording engineer by trade. I guess I've been you know, working with Trey and Fish since uh, about 1999. Since the structure is, is, is so old, it comes from a time when the pieces of wood, you know, they came out of the mill in, in random sizes. So the sort of inconsistency of the construction makes it a flattering acoustical experience. Also, when Trey uh, cut down trees to build a road up to, up to the barn, he saved all of the trees and had them uh, like milled. So the flooring of the barn is made out of the trees that uh, you know were, were cut down from the road. And, and they also have random choices of, of, you know, I can see cherry and mahogany and pine by also having, you know, a floor that's built from, from, from this sporadically different pieces of, of material. It, it just makes for a very exciting acoustic experience. I set up this one microphone and I had an eight track machine, which was like a very rudimentary eight track machine. And I was really excited to record in the barn. So I did one man's trash. And that was all just me like putting the microphone at one very distant end and turning an amp all the way up, like muting to get these, you know, like weird sound effects. And then I had some really complex horn compositions that I had written. And one of them was called At the Barbecue. So that was Jennifer Hartswick's first. I hired some local horn players and I hired Jennifer. She was, I think, 17. You'll have to ask her. My name is Jen Hartswick and I play trumpet and sing in the Trini Sesio band. I was 17 um, and he was recording that album One Man's Trash at the time and he had some sort of strange avant-garde piece of music and he asked Dave Grippo, he's like, oh, I need a trumpet player. Who should I get for a trumpet player? And he jumped at the opportunity to say, oh, you haven't met Jen yet. You're going to love Jen. Uh, you know, and I grew up in Vermont, so I knew who Fish was. But, you know, I was a kid. I didn't really know a lot about them. One day I came home from high school and there was a message on my parents' answering machine because I was in high school. And he sort of left this really lovely apologetic message about, hi, um, this is Trey. I, uh, I play for the band Fish. <laughs> it was all a big question. And he sent me the music ahead of time. And I came in to the studio and met him there. And we recorded at the barbecue, which is uh, ooh, one of the hits. <laughs> I was sort of testing her out because I'd heard about her around town. That was her first session. It was a, a piece where every horn player came in on a different section of the beat. So it kind of sounded like, you know, I was really happy to have it ahead of time to learn it. I really knew nothing about him coming into it. So when I got there, he was so warm and this full of life, goofy, you know, knit hat skateboard very like hands-on lots of gesticulation like really happy he's like clanking on glasses and stuff while we were playing it was just like i was like oh this guy's this is fun huh this is different and fun and all the clapping and everything was just me walking around the barn like 20 tracks of fake clapping but i was breaking in the barn so that was the first thing that was ever recorded there but it was empty and I walked out of there thinking, well, that was a fun one-time thing. I'm sure I'll never see that guy again. And that was really far from the truth. 
it was kind of overwhelming, this huge space that also was a construction site at the time. It wasn't done yet. But I had a skateboard and a hockey stick and a hockey ball. And I would just skateboard around this place all day and then put all the sound effects and all the guitars and miss her completely. I did Quantigy there. And you hear these like clashing tones like, Quantigy. There's like this, I was turning amps up as loud as they would possibly go so that the whole barn was shaking with feedback and then just like muting the track. And then like changing the pitch to a half step so that they would rub against each other. And it was just like hours of pot smoking recording, basically. It was just so fun. That was such an extension of lifetime of four tracking. It wasn't really like making an album per se. It's just kind of like joyously running around the barn, hearing sound. It was a fun hang from like day one. And it still is. It's like never lost its fun hangdom. teams win and no part is more important than the other tom brady can't throw the ball and catch the ball and hike the ball and the guy hiking it is probably more important if he doesn't hike it well tom brady gets hit and they don't win there's always that you know like every piece is celebrated every personality is celebrated hi my name is russ lawton drummer for the trey anastasio band i'm a team player man you know i've never been in the sports but uh, as a band guy that's really important to me and I'm always, always telling engineers, sound men, make everyone the same volume, make everyone exactly the same volume. I believe that if we send a message of unity from the stage, people will feel it. I guess we went on 99 after that with the trio. And then the rest of the band started joining. One awe-inspiring musician after another came walking in the door. And I think that's really the heart and soul of this band. My name is Ray Patchkowski. I'm the keyboardist in the Tranastasio band. Early 90s, the Burlington scene, um, we knew about the Fish Guys. I was in a band called Viper House. They would come and see our shows. You know, it was just like the Burlington kind of thing. A couple of years later, our band went to a fish show, Winston-Salem, in the arena there. They were doing those shows. We were playing right across the street at um at a place called ziggy's and they were in the giant arena so it was just kind of funny we went over there and then they came over to see our show and when he was there he was like i'm putting this band together and would you be interested do you know who tony markellis is and russ lott and i was like oh yeah i, I sort of know who they are he's like all right stay tuned i saw ray with viper house and it was just like that guy is amazing <laughs> i gotta be in a band with him <laughs> A couple of years later, he shows up at a gig that I'm playing with a trio, and afterwards he's like, hey, I just booked you know, all these shows in Red Rocks, and do you want to do it? <laughs> I, was like, I was like, give me 24 hours, man, because I had, I had a young daughter, and that was it. Ray has a quality that Zappi used to have with his guitar playing, where Ray owns everything he plays in a way unlike very many musicians I've ever heard. Ray can make a wrong note sound right. There is no wrong note to Ray. There's no wrong rhythm. He's, he plays like in bursts of energy, which is a, to me like more of a nature kind of thing. Nature doesn't move in little square lines. Flocks of birds go by and you know what I mean? It's all very ebb and flow. And, and if you listen to the way Ray plays, he has that quality. 
Check out a, like a Zappa guitar solo and then check out a, a Ray solo. They just own it. Notes that should sound wrong are the rightest sounding notes when Ray plays them. It's an incredible thing. So Ray, Ross and Tony, then Jennifer. I was in college at the time. Just was sort of disgruntled and disappointed with my college experience. And I left. I hadn't spoken with Trey in probably a year and a half. And all of a sudden my phone rang when I was coming out of the driveway of school and headed home because I had no idea what I was going to do. And he said, hey, what are you doing? I said, I just quit school. And he's like, you want to be in a band with me? (laughs) It was such a question that like an eighth grader would ask another eighth grader, you know, like, hey, man. Want to come jam in my parents' garage? I said, sure. I mean, he's like, well, we're at the house right now. Can you come over? And so I went to his house and the whole band was there. And we, you know, worked on a bunch of now classic horn lines and, you know, push on till the day and all that kind of stuff was, was written that day. That was in 2000, I guess. In the beginning, I had various horn players. Dave Grippo, of course, who played around Burlington and Friends with Fish and all that stuff. Russ Remington. Then there's a guy named Andy Morose. The horn section changed a lot. That first tour was really special. It was a winter. We started at the Orpheum, and I believe it was in February. I think it would have been a one. And it was a quick tour. It was maybe a couple weeks, I think. But really, you know, it was a brand new experience for me. I grew up in a town of 400 people in the woods in Vermont. And so I'd never seen a tour bus. You know, the only time I'd ever been in a theater was going to see an orchestra concert. I had never been to like a rock show. I remember so clearly the bus picking us up at the fish office for the first time. And everybody else was a pro. You know, they'd done this however many times. I was a total little kid. I was in complete awe. You know, the door opened and, and I looked up and there was this big driver with a bald head and a leather vest and a big turquoise cowboy tie and a little white soul patch. And he was kind of scary looking, sitting behind the wheel. And he just looks down at with me with kind of like a furrowed brow, like, who is this little kid getting on the bus, you know? And he just goes, hey, Norlin. I was like, oh, oh, hey. He's like, I'm done. It was Dominic Placco, who was there, who has been everyone's driver. He's like such deep history in rock and roll roots. But anyway, that was my first. I was like, oh, my God, this is so scary. And he was so sweet. I didn't know what it was going to be. I knew Trey and I knew Fish, but I didn't really know the music much. He actually told me, he's like, don't listen to Fish. Whatever you do, don't listen, because I don't want to do Fish. I want to do something else. I was like, okay. And so I didn't really understand the scene. You know, I wasn't part of that scene. And so we went out on the road and I was like, holy shit, this guy's like a rock star. Like I had no idea, you know, I had never experienced that before. So that was an eye opener. I knew that Fish was huge. I didn't know how hard it was to start a band. Even if you're in a very popular band, to start a side project and have people come to it is not a given. Very difficult moment for me was that Fish went on hiatus. We had financial questions and I was the only one working. And there was a conversation that happened where suddenly I was going to play Alpine Valley and Deer Creek. And I remember sitting at a table with management at the time, and it was like, look, you're going to sell 11,000 tickets or something or 12. I wanted to play like Roseland. 
And my argument was, we're not ready. I don't have enough songs yet. I've played the Alpine Valley tons of times with Fish. I, I know what it takes. I, I'm not ready. This is a new band. The cart led the horse for one of the rare times in Fish history where that really happened. And it really messed me up. That was tough. Because I felt like I wasn't ready to play fucking Alpine Valley. <laughs> a lot of the people on stage had never been on a big stage yet. We had very little material at that point. To go from, you know, 2,500 seats to 10 to 15,000 playing sheds in a, a couple months later, unbeknownst to me, Trey was like, apparently, <laughs> this is I found out years later, was like, we don't have the material to be doing this. But I suppose if the tickets are selling, then people are telling you it's the right thing to do. The band was getting really good, but my feeling was I didn't want to play those venues. I wanted to play theaters with Tab. Playing bigger places was a way to keep the organization afloat during the hiatus, which I felt a lot of pressure from. It wasn't good for me. I didn't think we were quite ready. In my mind, we didn't even have an album yet. It was always fun. If there was any pressure, Trey completely absorbed that on his own. I think that's part of his personality is that he never wants anybody to do anything but what they're here to do. Like he never wants you to know what's going on really truly behind the scenes or with the budgets or with the, you know, that's like he absorbs that as sort of his job so that we don't take that on, which is very purposeful. <laughs> I never felt any pressure, it was just fun. The only request from him was come as you are. Very rarely does someone just say, come as you are, and we'll figure it out from there. It's like, what kind of music do you want to do? Like, what sounds good to you? Basically, that all my life playing music, that's sort of what the point of it is, is to make something that is cohesive and sounds good, like any kind of music. And so it's like figuring out what does this band do? There are lots of like these long jams and, you know, it was all just kind of new to me, like how to how to navigate it, and it slowly worked out. Red Rocks is an amazing place. It's got some kind of spirit going on in there. First time I played Red Rocks, I was like, holy smokes. I was just looking around like, whoa. Wow. And of course, too, the elevation kicked my ass the first time. And the doctor's like, just bring some Gatorade and have some oxygen, you'd be okay. And by the time I got up there, I was all right. But before that, I was like, whoa, what's going on? I do remember being at Red Rocks for the first time, not having ever heard of Red Rocks, not having seen a picture of it and walking in and just thinking, you have to be shitting me that this exists. And being in the dressing rooms and they're all built into the rock. And it was truly an awe-inspiring moment. And it was raining diagonally as it always does up there. We played Mozambique. We had this whole ridiculous like ballet <laughs> that occurred at that time. I was like, all the horn section like fanned out in back of each other in front of each other. Oh my God, it was so funny. Alive Again will return after a quick break. The whole idea behind the barn was to not have that atmosphere of professionality, not have that atmosphere of being on the clock. 
That's why the barn exists. Cause like, I didn't want to go to a studio. You're on the clock the second you walk in. If you go out and start joking around, that's a very expensive hour of joking around that you're ultimately paying for. What that does is it makes you feel like we got to get in there. We got to do something. And that's not where good music comes from. In my experience, it comes from just living. So I like the joking around. I'd rather be joking around all the time. And then once in a while have some music come out. <laughs> I think about making that first tab record, you know, the guy looking out the window, what with Push Until the Day and everything, and how much fun we had in the barn. Everybody was there getting to know each other. Starting a new band is so fun for me. The record was pretty organic and probably heavily influenced by the excitement of the barn being open. There were songs that were sort of written on the fly, and then there were songs that were more completed. So like Push Until the Day was probably done. And we just played it. That's completely live on the record. I love that version. I really do on the first record. It said so much about the future of the barn that you could set up in this space with no control room and play like that with everyone playing live. That was kind of my dream and it was coming true. So there's a lot of excitement. We used to have like crazy parties on the bus. Everybody was running around all the time. It was just nuts. Which is what Push Until the Day is about, by the way. I remember that was written very quickly, and I was like, this bus thing isn't gonna last forever. But for a minute, it was really fun. You know, it was like a tipping point. I was like, I'm just gonna describe this, <laughs> exactly what's going on. <laughs> quickly became like a party place, which was a lot of fun for a while till it tipped beyond fun. But if you listen to Farmhouse, like if you listen to Twist, as it fades out, you hear like a hundred people just like laughing and talking. Everyone's crammed around the, the soundboard. There were parties going on while we were mixing too. <laughs> it was a, <laughs> the sort of like, Live performance energy that you hear on Farmhouse is definitely, a, you know, a result of there, you know, being people present, you know, other than band members while we were making those recordings. Being so comfortable with that performance aspect, they had the ability to kind of like focus in and, and hit things like really hard without being distracted by all, all those crowds there. And so there was nothing but like, you know, the sort of like positive energy and excitement and, and, and participation that was going on. It was just a huge party going all the time. So we'd be recording and we'd like do a song and everybody would say, everybody shut up. But there was always tons of people around. Like, and it would go until the sun came up, like regularly. So a lot of that stuff on that record was organic and live and unplanned. I was there from the very beginnings of, of those sort of like rehearsal slash song teaching, arrangement, construction phases. It was, it was actually a, a, a really interesting thing that we did was that we recorded before they went out on tour and then after they went out on tour. So we had like a, a really deep pool to pull from. For, for me, it was like a very exciting experiment just because I could see what got better, what, 
what got worse, you know, where, where things evolved, you know, from, from a band's perspective and input. I mean, it used to be just never ending, never ending. We'd be up at the barn for, you know, 14 hours and, and everybody's exhausted night after night after night, you know, and mornings and coffee and there's zillions of pieces of yellow legal pad with ideas for titles and lyrics. And I mean, it's just everything is everywhere. I remember him scratching out the lyrics to last tube on like on the outside of the barn with a pencil, just like furiously writing. All of our rehearsals used to be there. Um, and most of us were living in Vermont at that time, so it was easy. So much thought and care went into building this place so that he always talks about this, like the hinges and stuff like that, where every single little teeny part of the barn is, it has a story. And the furniture is from his great grandmother and is, you know, these lights are from some gymnasium that they were tearing down. You know, every single floorboard has a story about where it came from. And so when you set foot in there, it's like you, you're already in a part of so many people's history, not just the history that like you're involved with currently, but so many stories that are ingrained into every detail. I could never tell you how many months of my life total that I've spent in that place. Some of those songs on that record, Tom and I were always, always will be and always had been writing. But like we went on some trip and there was like this moment, like I, everything we write together, I save, right? So we were swimming, he came out of the water and there are these things sticking to his skin, right? And they're like little trilobites. And he was kind of singing, or the two of us started singing together. You know, the trilobites are everywhere. They're on my skin and in my hair. I can't seem to get them off, can you? This is my Cayman review. We were in the Cayman Islands. So I had these little bits and pieces, but then when we went to the barn, you know, I wrote that whole song in the barn. It wasn't a song while we were making that record. And Tony is the one who threw in the line, shake me up, shake me down. It was me, Tony, and Bryce were the only ones in the barn just hanging out. And he said, shake me up, shake me down, shaking that thing all over town. And I want to credit him with the best line in the song. There's a show we did in Pittsburgh with this train track that went by the stage it was outdoors and there was a train track and while we were, we were playing some huge jam just pumping and this giant train went by like right next to the stage and i could hear everybody in the band was like playing to the train like it's really cool heard about Ciro somehow. We hit it off right away. He's such a great guy and such an incredibly talented guy. My name is Ciro Batista and I'm, uh, I'm the percussionist from Trey Anastasio band, Deb. 
I was playing with Herbie Hancock. And then I'm, I moved to Jersey and I met friends that uh, for a long time, the Billy Martin for Medeski Martin Wood. And I know Billy Martin since he was a kid. And I didn't see him for many, many years. And then Billy said, oh, it's amazing. We are neighbors. Let's get together. Uh, why you don't come to play with me? And I went with them to Albany and we did the show. And then in the middle of the show, they invite this the guest. And then came this guy like with a shirt, like a, a jeans and the glass, like, like a super regular guy. Everybody went crazy. I never saw any, anything like that. And then we, he played like two songs. And when he left, he turned to me in the stage and said, you're going to play with me. And I said, yeah. <laughs> you know, many things always happen. I said, I'm never going to see him again. But then past one year, he called me. I said, oh, look, I, I have a studio here in, in Vermont. And then I said, wow, I want to go. And that's <laughs> that was my first time with him. Then I went to open the door for all this universe of that I never, I, I didn't know exist and was so nice to me. Ciro is the spiritual father of the band. We did a show after 9-11 at Radio City. New York City was just bleak still, just depression, like everybody's walking around like in a shock. Ciro, you know, led us off the edge of the stage to be marching through Radio City Music Hall. And we paraded into the street behind Ciro, all of us in the, with percussion instruments. And we went into the street at the end of the show and everybody came pouring out after us and this huge party started. When I came to New York, I started to play in the street. Also, was another school for me, you know, like to play in the street in New York. And that show, he told me, can you put in a percussion ensemble and uh, something that we can do with big finale? And when it was getting the show, the capoeira people flying the air and this, and this came like a 30 percussion in the stage and it's turning that explosion. And the people look like a a train, a locomotive, you no, know, in the stage, and we went straight to the audience. That time, the audience were more crazy than today. They were younger, too. <laughs> when we got to the street, and then I, I saw, oh, look, this is a little too much. You know, I, I, I know my experience to play in the street. This, we need to be smart here. And then, <laughs> and then I, we, we went to start to play, then start to stop the traffic. And then the people start to come and then turning into this big ritual. They have convulsions and crazy. And then I, I said, look, so the, the musicians said, let's play more two minutes. When I give it the cue, we run. And I, I give the cue and we run and the police come the other side. <laughs> It was crazy. I look at the beauty, having people almost falling from the windows. <laughs> that's that's how I saw it. No, but it was a, a great, good finale. The next day, I woke up in the morning, and the New York Post had written about it, and they said, "This is exactly what New York needed. This is the greatest thing ever." 
Oh, made me cry. Because I was kind of nervous about it. There were a lot of cops out there. And everybody was all like, ah, oh, you couldn't do anything. And we went out into the street and it was Ciro. Now that says a lot about who Ciro is in the band. Ciro embodies the way you're supposed to be in music. Take your music seriously, but never take yourself seriously. He's a master musician and he never stops having fun. We headlined the first Bonnaroo ever. We didn't know what Bonnaroo was going to become because most of the people at that Bonnaroo were our staff from our festivals. It was like basically Fish took a hiatus. So the festival staff and our art crew went down and they started Bonnaroo. And so they asked me to do it, which was great, fun. The first tour that I did, I think that was the first Bonnaroo was the closer of that. And that was a trip. I had never experienced anything like that in my life. You know, 100,000 people all chanting at the same time. It blew my mind. <laughs> we didn't know what this is like some little festival. I don't know. It's like it was the last show of the tour. Nobody knew what it was going to be. And suddenly it was this huge thing. That's the first time that I had ever seen that many people. That's the first time that I ever played for that many people, obviously. There was this strange duality because even though I could see people forever, I, I mean that, I couldn't see the end of the people and I had really good vision back then, um, but I could only feel the first th three or four rows. And it was what, such a strange feeling. And then you wonder like, are those people having fun? Are they just like eating dinner? Do they like, what are they doing out there? That Bonnaroo thing was, that was just powerful. Just seeing so many people so into the music. And it was the first tour that I, like I still didn't really understand what this music was gonna be. And yet there it was and people were just, that was powerful. Some of the music was just wonderful, I remember. played at the, in Utica, and that was the night that the balcony almost broke. People were dancing so hard that the balcony was like going, they stopped the show from the dancing. It was intense. If you listen to the Mr. Completely from Utica, it's all hand conducting. And I would do this thing where I'd put my arms out and the right half of the band, like the horns would speed up with my right arm while the band slowed down. And then <laughs> the horns would slow down. So they'd get like a riff. And I'd go like this, and the band would speed up, and the horns would go. Also, I would change keys, so we would modulate, 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 like up third, up third. 
and people got dancing so hard. I was watching people dancing, and I was just like using these tools to like build the intensity, build the intensity, build the intensity. Yeah, it was, you know, a particularly raucous evening. We were feeling no pain, just super in it. And then all of a sudden, just like you could see the whole balcony just start like with the music. Like, that's not a coincidence. That's science right there. Like, that's really happening. And the balcony was going up and down. And then these plaster pieces started falling on people's heads. And everyone was panicking. People were just dancing like, it was like animalistic dancing. Like, Wah! <laughs> and it was sort of became like a, an extra band member where it's like, okay, now we're, we're using this, you know? And then someone came from the side of the stage and was like, hey, hey, you can't do this anymore. <laughs> And then somebody ran on stage. They were like, you have to stop right now. The balcony's gonna fall down. And I did. That was it. You hear it, it stops. It stopped and I had to play a solo acoustic song and then end. They were like, no more. You're literally bringing the roof down. When the horns joined, the first, the Many, many, many of the, well, virtually all at the beginning of the horn charts were head arrangements that I would come up with, and I would sing them to them, and then they would play them. The Tab Megillah arrangement was, that was a head arrangement that I did, all of it. And it took hours, many, many hours that the band still talks about. We went into the Tabernacle in Atlanta, and I was like, I want to do an arrangement for Megillah. He... <clears throat> had been up for a night or two before. We walked into soundcheck at 2.30 probably. Trey had this idea that, oh, wouldn't it be fun to arrange Megillah a la Big Band because it's such a Big Band sounding chart. And so he played it for us and I'm like, all right, whatever. So the easy thing would be for us all to play the melody or sort of harmonize the melody. But he was on one and decided that we should fully dissect every moment of every bar. Yeah, that was an archetypal moment. It was like, I have this song that we're going to learn at Soundcheck, and we must have played it 50 times in its entirety. I'm pretty sure every measure was probably 20 minutes of like, what if it goes like this? And you do, okay, no, that's not, no, that's not working. That first three sections splitting the solo. Who wants the second solo? No, that's on the outro that we do. No, 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 you know, like you know, like all the different crossing parts. 
and then like they'd try to play and try and then we'd rehearse it and we kept I kept singing like fixing it and 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 fixing it. There was a lot of like pointing and you do this part and this part goes like this and then oh they've got a solos and then you take the first solo and you take the second solo and this went on for literally hours until we all wanted to punch him in the face. I love you so much Trey. It took hours and hours and hours. It just wasn't like, it's too fast, too slow. You got to come up, you got to go, this horn has to do that. You need a harmony. It was like, oh my God. We'd played it like a thousand times. You know, we record everything. We, we multi-track everything, every show, every sound check, every rehearsal, um, so that we can go back at any point and say, oh, remember that time when we actually did it right. And so finally, two and a half hours into this, we got one on tape that was correct. Finally, we got one on tape where it was all right. With the drum fills and everything, it was a full big band arrangement, but all the way I'm doing it, singing it at them. That whole arrangement was a head arrangement, every single note of it. <laughs> and then once it was on tape, I had it transcribed. And at the end of it, everyone knew that goddamn song. <laughs> we never had to rehearse it again. And the song's like three minutes long. <laughs> but it was great. We had essentially played an entire show already. We were super late for dinner. They were holding doors. We scrambled to like get ready and shove a bite of food in our mouths. The show started and we played an entire set. And then where the set break should have been, he said, thank you, good night. He thought the show was over at set break because we had been playing for six hours already. I like that arrangement. If there's one thing I've found in terms of composition, it's really become clear now. A lot of the stuff that I've done, I sing first, and all the stuff that I sing first lasts. It still remains one of the coolest arrangements that we have in the book. So give it up for hard work and perseverance. <laughs> partying had just gotten. Whatever you're picturing, it was a thousand times worse. There was a lot of effort going into hiding, and I'm sure it was failing miserably. But when I went home, I would try to stop. We had some show coming back, and it was like at the garden. It was like garden in three Hamptons. I was in pretty good shape at the time. And it was like, if we can't get through four shows without that stuff coming back, like, you know, the hard drugs and the darkness backstage, then we got a serious problem. So we played one set at the garden. I went back for backstage and it was like walking into like a Fellini movie or something. I couldn't even get to my band room. It was back immediately. I think probably right in that moment, the seeds for this has to stop were planted. And there was just this battle going on between sensible conversations between band members, fish band members and, and confusion and anger and realizing that saying we were going to take a break and clean stuff up had not worked. It was mayhem. 
there came a moment where the only possible way out of this thing was to declare that we're done. I felt horrible about it. We closed our whole office. The whole office was about 40 employees. We had to shutter it, like put it, everyone has to go home now, party's over. It was such a hard time. Even though everybody was furious at me, in retrospect, that was the single smartest move I've ever made in my life, ever. So we were going to implode. We were inches from imploding. We did implode. So Fish had broken up and I had changed management. There was a lot of confusion about whether Tab was going to keep playing. I ended up up in Vermont with a producer I had never met, Rick Beato. He suggested bringing in his friends who were younger than the musicians that I was working with. They were younger and friends of his. I'd never done that before. He brought them in. And I was like suddenly in a room with a band that I never knew nothing about. They were just guys who walked in the door. I'm like, this is your band. I feel bad about it to this day. I hope I wasn't mean. The whole thing was just so messed up. But it all was the cart leading the horse. Like the fans will rebel if Tab plays without Fish. I don't know. I was just writing these songs. So anyway, Rick and I started hammering on this album for like what's felt like a year. And it went nowhere. So into the picture comes Brendan O'Brien, who's a producer who I highly admire you know he did 10 by pearl jam and stone temple pilots that big song and you know he did bruce springsteen the rising you know i mean he's a talented guy and he kind of saved the day where he was like look you want to make a record and he called me on the phone come down to my studio we'll make a record i had half of those songs like i had like sleep again but it was in a it was a mess everything was a mess i flew down to atlanta with this band it was so awkward. Brandon said, all right, play me some songs. We all went in there. We already had a keyboard player in Les Hall, who's amazing, was playing keyboards. And then Ray came with me. Brendan was in the studio and I went in, I played two songs. He, he pushed the button, Trey, come in here. And he came in and he said, you're going to have to let your band go. So he said, except that guy, that guy stays. And he pointed to Ray. And Brendan's a straight shooter. And he was like, and you are going to tell them, not me, that they're fired. So then we had to go in the parking lot and I had to say to all those guys, I'm so sorry, you were about to make a record with a big rock producer and you're going home tomorrow. Then it was just horrible. And they're all super nice guys and talented guys, but that, that was the end. That's like the last I ever really saw those guys. That was it. And then it was just me, Brendan and Ray. I learned tons from Brendan that I still use today. Unlike other albums I had done, Brendan made me come to his house and he said, here's a stool. This is my home studio. You need to sit on this stool and play me the 12 songs that are going to be recorded for this album. Choruses, outros, lyrics with an acoustic guitar, or you're not allowed to go to the studio. That's not the way I normally do things. I was out of my comfort zone and it was hard at that moment. And also the there was an added pressure because of the feeling that Fish fans were so mad at me at the time. It was an awkward time, but I've carried that lesson with me now through every, even Time Turns Elastic. I started off playing it on a stool with an acoustic guitar. I, I thought that was a really incredible lesson that Brendan taught me. Um, and he's like, you can always go out in terms of um, arrangement. His kind of thing was like, let's not start fooling around in the studio until we know what we're building on top of. I didn't think Fish was going to be gone. I thought Fish was going to heal. 
I didn't want to break up Tab. Suddenly to have Fish break up and then Dionysian separate, I was completely alone. And I had no intention of breaking up Tab. on the next episode of Alive Again. I was in a, you know, felony drug court program. I'd been arrested and I was basically under house arrest for 14 months. I wrote a lot of music there that over time has come to mean more and more and more to me. I wasn't well before that. And now that's been 15 years this year of sobriety. I sat in with Dave Matthews. That was the first sober note that I played. I was playing at Mike Gordon's wedding up at the barn. I was like, hey, Trey, I haven't seen you in a while. He goes, we got to talk. The first time I ever got up on stage with an orchestra, tears started streaming down my face and my knees got weak. It's like an organic blob of sonic heaven. Alive Again is brought to you by Osiris Media. Executive producers are RJB and Matt Dwyer. Produced by Eric Renner-Brown. Interview and production assistance from Jesse Jarno. Production assistance from Matt Bavuso. Art by Mark Dowd. Thank you to all the guests and contributors. My name is Wendy Rollins. We'll see you next week for episode three. Osiris.